How does what we love fundamentally shape our hearts? Dr. James Smith is our guest this week discussing how our worship should change our longings and loves. It's all in episode 76 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 76 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host, and this week we're talking with Dr. James Smith. Dr. Smith is the professor of philosophy at Calvin College. He has authored or edited several books, including Imagining the Kingdom and the award-winning Desiring the Kingdom. We talked to Dr. Smith about his new book, You Are What You Love, about how our loves shape us and how our worship should shape our loves. And now, here's our conversation with Dr. James K.A. Smith. Dr. Smith, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. It's great to talk with you. Dr. Smith, you have written some amazing books on on worship, exploring worship in different ways. And your latest work, you take on the idea of love um, and kind of set up the idea that at the core, we are lovers. Talk about how you began to explore that idea. Yeah, I think it's... Um, so I'm a philosopher by training and by profession. And so... Um, I think it grew out of my work uh, where in the history of philosophy, especially in modern philosophy, we have tended to emphasize that human beings are thinking things, as Descartes put it. And what's intriguing to me is the extent to which evangelical Protestantism sort of bought that story. Like we, we sort of accepted this assumption that the human person is this brain on a stick, as it were. And so what happens is, is we, we think of discipleship then as primarily knowledge dissemination. And what I just found is, if we're honest, I think all of us experience this situation in which the problem isn't that we don't know <laughs> the right things. The problem is that we don't do what we know. And so in a sense, I thought, well, we need to rethink sort of who we are. And maybe we're not defined by our knowledge. We're not defined just by what we think. We're defined by what our heart longs for, by our our hungers, our loves, our desires. And it was probably engaging the ancient uh, work of the Church Father, St. Augustine, who really kind of put me on this track of realizing that we are we're centered in the heart, as Scripture puts it, and and uh, it's really our loves, our wants, our longings and desires that govern our action and behavior more than our sort of rational conclusions that we might reach. And so I'm I'm just trying to take that seriously, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that was fascinating to me was that a lot of us love things that we aren't aware that we actually love. Unpack that for us. Yeah, so this is important. So our our loves, our longings are shaped. They're trained. Uh, they are, you know, we're not talking about instincts. We're not talking about biological hardwiring. We're talking about these kinds of acquired dispositions and hungers. And the way that our loves are shaped and aimed are in many ways through immersion in sort of practices and rhythms and habit-forming routines and if you don't realize that your rhythms and routines are doing this to you, you won't even realize that you're kind of learning to love the wrong things. So that's why I've, I, I use kind of a churchy old word, liturgies, to try to describe this dynamic. So uh, um, 
for me, liturgies are love-shaping practices. They're heart-aiming rhythms and routines. And when you look at it that way, you realize that there are, in fact, all kinds of cultural practices and rhythms and routines that aren't neutral. They're not just something that we do. They're doing something to you. And uh, that's why you can end up – you might sort of on this unconscious level – have been taught to love the wrong things in the wrong way. And so there's kind of an uh, unveiling that has to happen so that we can become aware of how much our hearts have been captured by rival liturgies. Mm. Can you give us an example of, of what a rival liturgy might be today? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the one I often start with is... Um, we have this sort of insider joke in our family when our when our kids were younger and teenagers and they wanted me to take them to the mall they would say dad would you please take us to the temple <laughs> and they would sort of mock me as they were saying that and the reason was because we had had a conversation in which i tried to emphasize to them that the mall is not a neutral site it's not just a benign place where you go the mall is a cathedral of consumerism it's um it has the echoes of a kind of ritualistic uh, formation. And the mall is, it's not because the mall is trying to convince you to be a consumerist. It's not trying to argue that things will make you happy. Instead, it's, it has these kinds of liturgies, these rituals, these affective pictures of what, what the good life looks like. And you you get sort of captivated. Your imagination is captivated by these practices and pictures. And you sort of, without even realizing it, you become the kind of person who wants what the mall wants you to want. <laughs> and it's not because you've thought your way into that. You've practiced your way into that sort of disordered love. So think of the mall then as this kind of secular cathedral, this setting for secular liturgies. And and. If you can imagine that, now you can start analyzing all kinds of other cultural institutions and practices and realize that what's at stake there isn't just the messages or ideas that are floating around, but the rituals and rhythms that it's sort of inviting us into, and it's teaching us to love something that is antithetical to the gospel. Mm, that's so good. And I think for a lot of Christians, they hear that, and they hear Oh, okay, he's saying we shouldn't go to the mall. So is, is your advice that, or is it understanding how that pulls at our heart? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of room for individual discernment about this. So I, in general, I'm not saying, therefore, don't go. I'm, it's not a kind of withdrawal or abstention kind of uh, deal. Although, uh, you know, uh, um, for some people at, in some seasons of their life, it might be that they have to make this kind of strategic abstention from certain cultural institutions, right? Uh, um, on the other hand, though, I think what's more important is sort of unveiling and unmasking these things for what they are. So that that's why I, I always considered it a little bit of a parenting win when my kids would sort of like make that joke, Dad, will you take us to the temple? Because what it meant was, well, at least that insight had sort of lodged for them so that in a way, when they walk into the mall, they can kind of be, I see what you're trying to do to me. And and that might be the beginning of defanging it. I think the deformative power of these cultural liturgies is most potent precisely when you don't know it's happening. So when they are unconscious and covert, 
is when you are most susceptible to being co-opted by them. So if we can recognize them for what they are, I think that's the beginning of resistance. Although I think the ultimate answer is then looking for gospel-centered, Christ-centered, counterformative practices that shape us otherwise in, and recalibrate our hearts, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, and that was that was exactly what I wanted to talk about next. Is is when we think about you talk about worship as being so important to discipleship, and I think a lot of times when we think about discipleship, we think about practices and things like reading the Bible, prayer. But you you really call us back to seeing worship as an important part of discipleship. Talk about that. Yeah, and there's kind of several facets to that. I mean, the first thing I should say is, and what I mean by that is worship as the gathered people of God, communally around word and sacrament, right? Who are So I'm thinking of this as not just a, an individual activity that we're undertaking, but I mean in the body of Christ, right? So the, in, for me, the church is the heart of discipleship in that sense. The other thing I would just flag right away too, because some of our listeners might hear the word worship differently than I'm using it. When, when I say worship, of course, I mean a lot more than music. Whereas, don't you think in, in sort of contemporary evangelicalism, I think a lot of people, when we say worship, what immediately comes to mind for them is the period in the church service where we sing. Does that seem fair? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So we need to sort of break out of that narrow definition. I, by worship, I mean the sort of whole repertoire of what the people of God do when they gather around word and table, so to speak. And so in many ways, I'm trying to recover the importance of the worship practices of the body of Christ as a communal site where God forms us. And in many ways, that means I actually think some of the best resources for us thinking about formation and counterformation are found in really ancient and biblical wisdom in the heritage of the church. Mm. So the other theme that I would just emphasize to couch this conversation about worship is, I think, especially in contemporary evangelical Protestantism, we tend to think of worship as primarily an expressive activity. That is, I I think at the end of the day, we tend to think of worship as something I do, we do, where we come and we sort of show God our praise and we offer to God our, our worship. Whereas in the historical understanding of worship that I'm talking about and trying to retrieve, Worship isn't just a bottom-up expressive endeavor on our part. Worship is actually this kind of top-down site where God is doing something to us. So when I say that worship is the heart of Christian formation, it's primarily because in worship, we meet the God who is then shaping and molding us. Worship is this primary site that the Spirit invites us into to kind of recalibrate our hearts and to reshape our love habits. And um, uh, so I think that's important. Otherwise, uh, it, it would sound like saying sincerity or expressive worship is going to sort of recalibrate our loves, whereas I'm, I'm saying something a little bit different than that. Mm. And so the, the, the question that pops in my mind is, for so many people, you know, you hear you hear people say, "Oh, you know, I don't get anything out of a church service, or church is boring." Talk about how doing some of these historic practices that may may even feel boring actually can be igniting our hearts toward God. Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, maybe to step back just briefly, 
I should say, in You Are What You Love, I really emphasize that this understanding of love, the the sort of uh, calibration of the heart, so to speak, is precisely because love is a habit, right? Love is a virtue. It's this cultivated disposition that we acquire. And for that reason, the way you learn such heart habits, the way you learn to love is through the, it takes practice, right? You, you, you commit yourself to rhythms and routines as the people of God so that the Spirit is doing something to you over time. And so in that sense, my love is being shaped not just when I feel it, right? The, the, the orientation of my heart by the Spirit isn't always going to feel like an emotional experience. It's more like being immersed in these rhythms of the spirit so that the gospel story is sinking into my bones. Like it's, it's getting absorbed in my unconscious. And it, it, that's precisely why I want to commit to these practices over time because they are doing something to me, not because there's something that I'm doing. Does that make sense? So that they, mm-hmm. these are sort of conduits of the spirit's formative power and transformative power. So that, for example, uh, um, when I answer God's call to worship week after week after week, and when we as the people of God are taken through a worship practice where we confess our sins to God and hear the reality of his mercy and pardon and forgiveness, by precisely by committing ourselves to that practice, that piece of the biblical story, that piece of the gospel is sort of inscribing itself into my very character. And now I am increasingly becoming the kind of person who knows how to forgive because I have inhabited the story of God's forgiveness of me. So it's not so much um, that I have to sort of like be excited or expressive or um, feeling something. It's more like showing up as 90% of what making myself available for God to do something to me. So you could almost say, it's like there's a certain virtue to going through the motions. Uh, now, I say that carefully. I don't want to make it sound pro forma. But even as a father, you know, uh, um, when we had four teenagers in the house and we would commit to a congregation that wasn't exactly fun and exciting, but it was a congregation whose worship rehearsed the biblical story. And so I could say, yeah, maybe my kids aren't like super happy, clappy, and excited to be here, but I know that the Spirit is doing something to them because they're being taken through this biblical story. Mm, So good. I think a lot of pastors today, when they look at the worship in their church, they're feeling the pull to do a new thing, to be innovative, to, to try something different. And in your book, you really, you really push back towards let's continue to use the historical elements and, and not move away from those. Yeah, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is I think in many ways the kind of paradigm of worship that many of us experience in evangelical churches is in some cases largely an uncritical absorption of a secular liturgy, right? So we we, we sort of take the form of liturgical practices from the culture that people like, whether it's the rock concert or the mall or whatever it might be, and we think, oh, well, you know, people like going to those places, so why don't we adopt that form but sort of drop Jesus' content into the form? But my point is, well, wait a second, the form itself is already a loaded game. The form itself is already 
training you to want certain things. So if you basically appropriate the whole culture of the mall because it's accessible for people, and now you sort of put gospel content in it, you might think you're redeeming the mall, but what you're really doing is commodifying Jesus. Because in that very form of the practice, people think, oh, well, when I experience this kind of consumer environment, everything is there to make me happy. And so now you've just made Jesus one more thing on the shelf that's available for people to make them happy. That That's not encountering the Lord of history. So I think that's part of the problem. And, and by the way, the whole consumerist mentality is predicated on novelty, right? You need to be convinced that you need something new and shiny and glitzy. And so it's exhausting uh, for the church to basically get suckered into that story. So in contrast, right, I'm I'm saying that there's a lot of wisdom in the kind of accrued wisdom of the body of Christ led by the Spirit, which sort of gave us this narrative frame for what worship should look like, this narrative arc that the church rehearses over and over again. And maybe the key reason for that is there is no formation without repetition. We we really, really, really need to get over our allergy to repetition. It's funny, we, we, we embrace repetition in all kinds of other spheres of our lives, but for some reason, we think it's totally out of place in our spiritual lives. Whereas, in fact, precisely because God has made us creatures of habit, this is not a surprise to him. And, and to take habit seriously, and the spiritual significance of habit seriously, is to realize that the Spirit will do something to us precisely in the repetition. So there's no formation without repetition. Therefore, if we really want to form people, we need to invite them to keep practicing the gospel over and over again. And and that's what I'm suggesting is the sort of genius of historic Christian worship. I love that. I think another thing, like as I'm, as I'm hearing you, one of the things that I'm thinking about for a lot of our listeners is the problem of people being disengaged during worship. So, so somebody comes in, and, and maybe it's because of the repetition, but just feels like my heart is completely disengaged. What, what does that person need to do? That person or the people leading worship? Um, both. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I think— it is a real challenge. It's a real problem. I think sometimes the ways we try to solve the problem only exacerbate the problem. So for example, we imagine this kind of disengaged person and we know that that can't be right. That's not good. And so what we try to do is we try to figure out basically how can we entertain them into engagement. But when you take that strategy, that doesn't necessarily equate with spiritual formation. So not all engagement is necessarily good. <laughs> On the other hand, I think, and, and it, by the way, in that sense, I, I do worry that sort of some of the dominant paradigms in how we think about worship largely turn congregations into spectators, into audiences. Um, it's funny that in the name of sort of Protestant relevance, we end up back in a situation that it's not unlike the Middle Ages, where a bunch of people show up to watch other people worship. It's a it's an interesting replay. Maybe we need our own Reformation again. But I think what I would worry about in the disengaged person is... Um, Maybe it's partly because they don't understand why we're doing what we're doing when we worship. 
right? So you, 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 you have to invite people to understand what's at stake in worship, invite people to understand who's at work in worship. I think it's crucial that when we enter worship, we realize that Christ is already leading worship and in a way is inviting us into the throne room where he is praying to the Father and worshiping the Father. And so maybe raising the stakes uh, of worship. But sometimes, too, I wonder if you can't do it through the back door by helping people see all the cultural liturgies that they're immersed in, right? Like helping them wake up and to realize that when you answer the call to worship and come into the sanctuary, you are being called out of rival liturgies uh, that that you've been immersed in all week long. And sometimes I find when people get that new lens on their week, they enter uh, into Christian worship with a, a higher sense of the stakes. Mm. Let's talk about uh, calibrating our hearts outside of the Sunday service. Yeah, so the way I imagine this is worship is the heart of discipleship, and therefore the body of Christ is kind of the hub of uh, where the Spirit is going to form us and transform us. But then spinning out of that, from Monday to Saturday, we are sort of sent into our homes, our work, our schools, our uh, um, all kinds of other neighborhoods and communities. And what we need is sort of practices that continue to sustain us uh, and, and continue to reinforce the biblical story, right? So it's interesting, John Calvin, the, the great reformer, he wanted sort of the entire city of Geneva uh, to be framed by these disciplines, these spiritual disciplines of morning and evening prayer. And, and for him, actually, that looks specifically like uh, uh, framing your day with the psalms, morning psalms and evening psalms, because those practices, by praying the scriptures, by singing the scriptures, you're kind of absorbing the story in a way that then frames your work as a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker throughout the day. So I, I think there's uh, all kinds of opportunity for Christians to imagine how these rhythms and practices and routines can continue in households, can continue in schools, um, in, in other contexts. And in some ways, this is where maybe you can sort of join what I'm saying about the centrality of the church's worship to say the work of someone like Dallas Willard or Richard Foster about the spiritual disciplines. So in many ways, uh, these historic disciplines uh, would reinforce what it, the Spirit has been doing on a, on a Sunday morning. One example I, I uh, sometimes give is in our family, in our household, we have sort of adopted what's sometimes called the liturgical calendar or the church year as a way to just kind of frame our home, to frame our family life so that the rhythms of Advent and Christmas tide and Lent and Easter tide become these sort of organizing principles that just remind us who we are and whose we are. And and what's fun, especially if you have families, is the liturgical calendar comes with its own sort of tactile practices. You know, you can light candles with the kids. In in Lent, you can fast together as a family and sort of learn your spiritual hungers because you're experiencing physical hunger. There's colors that go with these. So there's there's a lot of resources out there to think about how to do these kinds of things so that they become they, they shape the environment of our of our Monday to Saturday lives. Mm, I love that. Are there other uh, communal practices? that you recommend? Yeah, I mean, the communal practices 
become interesting. I, I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of young Christians that I see, I, I, I teach at a college, and, and as I see Christians graduating, it's interesting to me that many of them are interested in making commitments to live in proximity to one another precisely so that they can have rhythms of a shared life throughout the week. And sometimes that looks like just basic practices of hospitality, right? So so Christians in a neighborhood might commit to having meals together throughout a week. And yet, don't underestimate the sort of formative power of people committing to fellowship around a table and sort of reminding themselves who they are and whose they are and what they're about. So practices like hospitality, I think, you know, not all of these practices have to feel like Sunday morning practices to be reinforcing uh, um, our, our experiences of, of the world as God's. Another example in our household, not that we're exemplary, but um, my wife is a master gardener and uh, we have this big urban uh, vegetable garden plot in the middle of the city. And in a way, the whole household is sort of caught up in the rhythms of the garden, which become rhythms of reminding ourselves about creation, about our dependence on God, on our finitude, our mortality. It's, there's ways that we are learning something about God and our relationship to God that we could never quite put into words. It's so. It's one thing to read a book about a theology of creation. It's another thing to get your hands dirty in the obligations of tending a garden. And, and there's a kind of know-how that's picked up in those practices that can't be repeated in the know-what of a book. And, and it's thinking creatively about those kinds of things. I love it. Uh, Dr. Smith, the time has gone so fast. I feel like we're just scratching the surface on all that you've written. And uh, we'll link to the these books uh, that you've written in the show notes. But thank you so much for taking time to share with us today. Oh, thanks so much for your interest. I appreciate it. Well, thanks again to Dr. James K.A. Smith for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And send this episode to somebody that you know that might benefit from listening to it. Also, download the show notes for this episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. In those show notes, we always include resources mentioned in the show and links to some of our guests' top content on churchleaders.com. As always, if you have ideas for how we can improve this podcast or guests that you'd love to hear us talk to, email us at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.